All right, I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. John 6, starting in verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. I'll send us the reading of God's holy and inspired word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of knowing your will. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have revealed to us and for all that you intend to accomplish through it. Lord, we thank you especially for what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray now that as we open up your word, uh, that you would use it to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, we pray that as it goes forth, it would be received for what it is, the word of God and not the word of man. Lord, we pray that it would be only your truth that is spoken here today and that uh, you would accomplish your intentions through it. Lord, be glorified in us. Uh, build up your people through the preaching of your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up our series again in John, and we are continuing in chapter 6. Uh, we've been taking our time working through the discussion following Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000. You may remember Jesus had been challenged. Uh, the Jews compared the miracle Jesus had performed to that of Moses providing manna, bread from heaven, uh, to the people of Israel in the wilderness, uh, possibly intending to downplay the miracle that Jesus had performed. They had asked, what sign do you perform? Right? Moses gave bread in the wilderness. Uh, what sign do you perform that we may believe you? And Jesus answered them then, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. He then went on to explain that he is the bread of life, the true bread from heaven. 
The crowd grumbled against him, and Jesus then explained their unbelief by pointing out the necessity of grace. Right? Though this crowd did not believe, it did not show that Jesus was a failure, for he declared in verse 37 that all that the Father gives him will come to him. And in fact, verse 44, no one can come unless the Father draws them. Jesus then begins explaining this drawing of the Father and extends this bread of life metaphor. And that brings us to our text this morning. Let's read together from verse 45. Jesus says, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So here Jesus begins unpacking what he just said in verse 44. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws them, uh, and I will raise them up on the last day. Now he's explaining, what, what is that drawing? Uh, what's, it, what's he talking about here? And so he says, it is written in the prophets, and he's likely quoting Isaiah 54, verse 13, which was initially addressed to the restored city of Jerusalem, uh, foreseen by the prophet. And that verse says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, taught by Yahweh, and great shall be the peace of your children. D.A. Carson writes, The passage here is applied typologically. In the New Testament, the messianic community and the dawning of the saving reign of God are the typological fulfillment of the restoration of Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. So that's a little bit complicated. To, to bring this down, Carson argues that this passage uh, in Isaiah 54 was originally talking about the restoration of Jerusalem. You may remember Judah was conquered by Babylon, uh, but through Isaiah, God was prophesying a time when his people would be returned to their homeland. Jerusalem would be restored. And you can read about that restoration through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In those books, right, the exiles return, rebuild the walls, and rebuild the temple. And so Jesus then is drawing from a text about the restoration of Jerusalem and is applying it to the New Covenant era. And so the restoration of the exiles to their homeland, right, the people being brought back from Babylon, back to Jerusalem, is used as a type of what God was going to do in the New Covenant era. Right, so a type, it was a foreshadowing, uh, pointing ahead, giving a hint of something greater yet to come, a greater restoration, a greater time of blessing, the typological fulfillment still yet to come. And so Jesus now uses this text to explain what the drawing of the Father in verse 44 would be like. Right? They will all be taught by God. And so we see this drawing of the Father, which we spoke of last Sunday, is not a violent or coercive action on God's part. Right? This is one of the common attacks that comes upon uh, this doctrine of effectual calling, uh, which we unpacked last week. Right? Because we say, as Jesus does, that no one can come unless the Father who sent him draws them. And so as we looked at last week, we see God must intervene, right? He must move in the heart of a sinner to draw them to himself. And the objection that comes uh, from those who disagree with that view is that this is dehumanizing, 
Right? This would be a violation of free choice. They would see it as God essentially forcing people against their will, and they see that as a horrible view. Uh, and so it's really helpful here to see how Jesus explains what this drawing is actually like. This work of the Father in the heart is not coercive. Right? All who are taught by the Father come. God is not dragging anyone, kicking and screaming into the kingdom. It's not saving people against their will. Rather, the drawing of the Father, this effectual calling, is, as Carson puts it, an insight, a teaching, an illumination implanted within the individual. So God is not forcing us to accept something that we find hideous. Rather, he gives us new eyes, so that we would see the gospel to be beautiful. He draws us, not against our wills, but by softening our hard hearts, giving us eyes to see the beauty that is truly there. He shows us, reveals to us, frees us from the slavery to sin and love of darkness which formerly constrained us. We are taught by God. So we see this is not God forcing the unwilling, but rather granting us the willingness, renewing our natures, overcoming our fallenness, breaking the chains that bound us. As the hymn puts it so beautifully, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? They shall all be taught by God. Now, one of the promises of the new covenant was that this would be true of all New Covenant members. We would all be taught by God. We would all know God. And so Hebrews chapter 8 quotes from uh, Jeremiah 31 to show that the New Covenant was founded upon better promises. Hebrews 8 verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws inside their minds, into their minds, and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So notice, all the members of the new covenant shall know the Lord. Whereas the old covenant was a mixed covenant, right, with both regenerate and unregenerate people as true members, or we could say both unsaved and saved people within that one covenant, uh, this is one of the ways in which the new covenant is said to be different. It's founded upon better promises, and one of those better promises is that all New Covenant members would know the Lord. As Jesus says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
And so this then is in fulfillment of promises like this one from Jeremiah 31. We are made new covenant members through our union with Christ. It is only those who are drawn by the Father who come, only those whom the Father has taught, those whom he has illuminated. Uh, Jesus comes in fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. He is inaugurating the new covenant which was prophesied uh, centuries before. Let's continue on, verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And so Jesus here heads off another possible misconception. Having just spoken of being taught by God, someone might mistakenly assume that this means people could enjoy personal, mystical communion with God apart from the revelation that has been given in Christ. Once again, we see Jesus is the mediator. He is the path. No one can bypass Christ and claim to have special communion with the Father. Nobody, in fact, can claim to know God at all while rejecting Christ. Notice again what Jesus says. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, comes to Christ. As Jesus had said previously, so he says again, if you truly knew the Father, you would come to me. Here we get another glimpse, another answer into why Jesus ended up being so hated by so many and this is one of the things that's unrealistic about some of the Jesus movies that have been made. As you have somebody who is just such a likable, uh, joyful character, such a calm, gentle spirit who would never bother or offend anybody. And you kind of wonder, it's like, how could a guy like that ever end up getting crucified? Right? But here we start to see it. Jesus says some very, very offensive things to the Jews. Uh, as he had declared previously, um, that anyone who does not honor him does not honor God, does not honor the Father who sent him. He declared to them that they did not know the scriptures either, for the scriptures testify about him, and they refused to come to him. Right, to the Jews who would have said that Moses was their guy, Moses was their prophet that they held in such high esteem, Jesus declares, Moses will be your accuser before God. Right, for Moses wrote of me, and you refuse to come to me. And here now, Jesus says, everyone who has been taught by God comes to me. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Christ. So what then does that imply about the crowd that Jesus was speaking to who was currently refusing to come to him? They had not been taught by God. They have not learned from God. They have not heard God. They do not know God at all. Jesus is the clearest and fullest revelation of the Father. So clear, in fact, that Jesus can say to Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so everyone who truly knew God, either through the scriptures, as Jesus said in chapter 5, or here through God teaching them, moving in their hearts. Anyone who truly knows 
God will come to Jesus Christ. For he is the fullest revelation of the Father. Those who don't receive Christ, who don't come to him, who don't believe in his name, therefore do not know the Father either. Jesus makes this so clear again and again. And it's very important for us to have settled in our minds as this is very likely an area where we are going to continue facing pressure from the world. Just consider, our nation considers multiculturalism to be a core value. And what they really mean by that is um, that what is at the center, the worshiping center of every different culture must be held in equal esteem. Right? What we say as multiculturalism, the Bible would have called uh, syncretism, right? idolatry, pluralism. Right? Uh, and so for us to declare in our nation that there is only one way to God is considered by our nation to be one of the cardinal sins. Right? We are told that there is no one way to God and that it's bigotry to say that your religion is better than someone else's religion. And we can get a lot of pressure on us to compromise uh, on what the Bible teaches here. But if we would take the words of our Lord to heart, then all of the name-calling, right, whether it's bigot or whatever, all the name-calling in the world will not matter to us. For we know that Christ has been so clear. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, comes to him. We are not free to dismiss the words of our Lord and Savior in the name of tolerance. We are not free to abandon the teachings of Christ for the sake of diversity. But we proclaim as he did, there is one way to God, one path to peace with God. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we would truly love our neighbors, we cannot compromise on this. Hold fast to the words of the Lord. Let's continue on with verse 47. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am. And the bread of life. I believe in me and you will have eternal life. I am the bread of life. And Jesus then begins to unpack this metaphor. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So remember again, the Jews had challenged Jesus. They had asked him to provide them with a sign, right? Something like the manna from heaven. And Jesus now says, I'm giving you something better. You want bread from heaven? I am the true bread from heaven. I am the true bread of life, and I am superior to the manna that your fathers ate in the desert. How? Though the manna did provide life temporarily, right? It 
saved people from starvation, gave them life and strength to continue on. Jesus points out that every single person who ate of the manna died eventually. Right? They all still died. And so Jesus declares that he is the true bread from heaven that grants eternal life. Now what better bread could you ask for? Right? Bread that miraculously appears on the ground with the morning dew to provide for you every morning. This is pretty wonderful. You can maybe think of some special bread from uh, fantasy stories. Think of Lord of the Rings has lembast bread that fills the stomach of the grown man with one bite. Right, that's some special bread. Maybe some of you have wives who make sourdough, artisan sourdough. That's some special bread. But now just think of how much better this is than the manna or lembas or even your wife's beloved sourdough bread. Imagine bread that someone could eat that would cause them to live forever. Right, to grant eternal life. Jesus says, you want a sign like the manna? You want a sign greater than the manna? You've got it. I am the bread of life. If you eat of this bread, you will never die, but will live forever. Jesus says that the bread he gives for the life of the world is his flesh. And that starts to sound a little bit weird, doesn't it? People are not made of bread. Jesus is not actually edible, is he? Well, if that's your question, if you're wondering about this, you're not alone. Uh, look at verse 52. So the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right, what in the world is he talking about? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. So the Jews are confused by this saying. They start to mutter, asking, like, what is he saying? What does he mean? How can he give us his flesh to eat? And rather than explaining again, Jesus doubles down and extends his metaphor even farther, saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That is admittedly jarring language. Jesus once again shows he is not what we would call by today's standards a seeker-sensitive preacher. But now we want to ask, for those of us who may be confused by this, as the Jews were, what does Jesus mean? Right? What does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood, <laughs> as he says here? Well, we, we need to remember the key that we received in verse 35. Uh, remember, this is all one long discussion. Right? We've been breaking it up, taking it in chunks. But this is all one discussion. Uh, Jesus had declared way back in verse 35 that he was the bread of life and those who come to him would not hunger and those who believe in him would never thirst. Right? So hungering and thirsting corresponds to eating and drinking. So now we ask the question, given what Jesus has said already, how is it that you receive this bread in the way Jesus describes well, look, those who come to me, 
will never hunger. Those who believe in me shall never thirst. Thankfully, Jesus does not leave us guessing as to what he means with this rather peculiar metaphor, but he gave us the explanation at the outset. Come to me. Believe in me. This is quite simply the gospel call. Come to Christ in faith. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice as well the parallel between verse 40 and verse 54. Uh, Look at these side by side. Uh, Verse 40 says, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So D.A. Carson comments, The conclusion is obvious. The latter is a metaphorical way of referring to the former. So he's saying the one is using a metaphor to say the exact same thing. Let us not be confused by this passage. If we would simply let Jesus define his own metaphor, the meaning becomes clear. To eat his flesh and to drink his blood is a metaphorical way of saying uh, that we are to look to him and believe in him. He is talking about faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And the promise is made that all who have faith in Christ will not perish but have eternal life. And let's just lean into that one for a little while. Uh, Jesus has spoken of eternal life quite a lot throughout John to this point. Uh, We've seen that again and again, and we haven't really unpacked it much. Uh, So we'll do so here. This can become such a familiar phrase to us that we can tend to gloss over it without much thought. But this would be a serious mistake for us. Remember that everything God reveals to us, he does for a reason. And so we must ask this question. Why does Jesus keep talking about eternal life? What's the purpose? This is brought up so many times. How is it functioning in the text? How are we supposed to receive it? Just think of John 3.16, famous passage. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life is the opposite of perishing in this text. It is the end, the goal that God was aiming at in giving his son. In his great love, he gave his son so that all who believe would have eternal life. We see it functions as well as the incentive, uh, the reason, the motivation for believing. It is assumed you do not want to perish, but rather you want eternal life. This is what Jesus keeps offering. I am the bread of life that grants eternal life. This is how Jesus is superior to the manna, for he is the bread of life that grants eternal eternal life. Consider the value of eternal life. Right? Let's, let's argue from the lesser to the greater. 
Right? Suppose for a moment that Jesus were offering uh, literal bread that could cause someone to live forever here in this world. Right? Immortality. You think that has been the goal of many men and the topic of many stories and legends, right? People who have searched the world, going on quests and adventures, seeking after things like the fountain of youth or the philosopher's stone that would grant the wielder immortality, right? Something that could set man free from the curse, set them free from that inevitable date with death. Right, this has been in our history that we have sought after immortality. Now, while our so-called enlightened culture may have moved past uh, alchemy or belief in mythical fountains, we see we are still chasing immortality. Right? We are still at war with death. We are at war with time, right? aging, wrinkles, all the things that ail us as we age. Just think how many billions of dollars have been spent on beauty products aiming at reversing aging, right? Botox, wrinkle creams, and the like. Or on a more substantial level, think of the attempts to escape death through technology. People seeking eternal life through robotics, uh, so-called transhumanism as we seek to replace our vital organs with machinery or to download our consciousness onto computers, or people freezing themselves through cryogenics to wait for a time when technology will enable them to cheat death. Right? All of these things, this is man attempting to be his own savior, right? seeking to find eternal life on our own terms. We have long understood that death is our enemy, Right? This is the curse. This is due to the fall into sin. And it is something that we all must face. So just on this level, bread that could grant you immortality in this life would be the philosopher's stone. Right? This is the fountain of life. Already that would be the most valuable thing you could imagine. But note that the stakes are even higher. For the fact is, death in this world is not the end. Remember again, John 5, 29. Jesus says, there is a judgment coming. When you die, you do not simply cease to exist. It is not simply annihilation. The stakes are eternal, one way or another. Those who die under the wrath of God will continue to experience wrath for eternity. It is damnation that awaits. Suffering, misery, and punishment is what we have all earned for our sin. Scripture tells us that we are all by nature children of wrath. Right? So wrath is our inheritance, hell our natural destination. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, both in this life and that which is to come. And so the good news, the bread of life that Christ offers, does not simply grant us immortality in this world. It doesn't confirm us permanently in this state 
this world forever, but rather Christ offers us eternal life with him forever. So we ask the question, what happens to a Christian after death? What does scripture teach us about eternal life? Right, this is so significant. We see this in this text again and again. Uh, what does this really mean? We draw from other texts. Those who die in Christ will wake up in the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Or Philippians 1 verse 23, as Paul considers the approaching time of his death, he says, I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Or consider Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where Lazarus, the beggar, dies, is carried by angels to Abraham's side to the place, to a place of blessing. So much more than simply immortality here, we will be made perfect, made sinless, and will immediately enter into the presence of our Lord. And for the Christian, simply being with Christ will be the best thing about heaven. Uh, But even this, however, is not the final state, is not the eternal state. As we saw earlier in John as well, uh, there is a physical, bodily resurrection coming, right? Christ will return, uh, the trump of the archangel will blow, and the dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive and are left will uh, be joined together with them. Um, creation will be fully redeemed, renewed, and restored, and then we will live forever with the Lord. So think on this, right? Let this be what's in your mind as you read these, these texts about eternal life. To be made like Christ, perfect in holiness. Perfect in holiness. Brothers and sisters, think about this. To never sin again. Right? To never scorn the God that you love again. To be completely free of the battle with indwelling sin that plagues you every day of your life on earth. To never scorn God's worth, his majesty. But to see him face to face and so to be made like him. To have deeper fuller communion with with the God whom you love than anything that you were ever capable of here on earth. Think of eternal life. Think of being reunited with your loved ones who died in Christ. To see them free of the pain that you remember them experiencing. To see them as glorious beings which you might have been tempted to worship had you seen them on earth. To live forever in the presence of God. No pain, no crying, no sorrow, no tears or death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, 
and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is the eternal life offered by Christ. When you come across this phrase, eternal life, or being raised up on the last day, bring this to mind so that the passage would carry the appropriate weight in your mind and your heart. I am convinced that I and we do not spend nearly enough time meditating, reflecting on the blessings of eternal life. Right? Considering how much Jesus talks about it in John, considering how much God has revealed it to us in his word, and considering how small our lifespan will be when compared with eternity. Right? The longer you spend in eternity, the smaller by proportion your earthly life will be. Now, just considering this, it's actually strange that we spend so little time thinking about the life to come. Right? Imagine, kids, you are in the last day of school. Right? Summer break is right around the corner, and your, promise, and your parents have promised to take you on vacation. Right? So you are, you are leaving for Disneyland the moment the bell rings, or you're leaving for a holiday at sea, or going to whatever destination. Right? Now, how strange would it be if in that moment, you, you were putting all of your mental energy, all of your attention, all your worries and concerns into that final hour of class. Would your mind not naturally be going constantly to that great joy that awaits you? Right? That, that holiday, that vacation, that glorious trip you're taking? Brothers and sisters, we have just a short time left, and then forever with Christ, right? Whatever your lifespan is, for youngest people among us, what do we have? 80, 90, 100 years, 110 at the most, right? That is nothing compared to eternity. And then it is forever with Christ. Let that sink in. Let the hope of the joy that is to come Shape and color your lives in the present. Live your life in light of eternity. You know, there's the old saying that people can be so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. And I think there is a certain danger uh, in certain types of escapism. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about here. And as C.S. Lewis comments, uh, most of the time, it's actually the other way around. Uh, he writes this. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Close quote. God reveals what he does about heaven for a reason. 
Jesus speaks of eternal life for a reason. It is meant to bring us hope. It is meant to bring us joy. It is meant to bring us excitement. And it is meant to grant us perspective. There is so much more than just this life. The troubles and trials that we face, Paul says, are light momentary afflictions when compared to the weight of glory that awaits us. And there's two ways you could take that. First, you could take that as Paul belittling our earthly troubles. Or you could take that as Paul showing the glory of what is to come. Right? And that's his point there. Compared to what's to come. The very serious trials, the very severe sufferings that we undergo here will be seen as nothing because of the glory that outweighs them. Right? Not worth comparing. So meditate on eternal life. Right? Make it a regular practice of yours. Right? Look up the texts that speak about heaven and chew on them. Mull them over. Let them build you up and encourage you. All right, let's finish up our text. Verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live, for, will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Jesus says his flesh and blood are true food and true drink. Now, that does not mean that they are literal food and literal drink that you could physically, literally eat and drink. But as Carson points out, they are what food and drink should be in an ideal, archetypical sense. Right, so food and drink, what, what do they do? How do they function for us? They grant life. Right? You will die without food and drink. Christ then, as the true food and drink, does what food and drink do only to a greater extent. Right? For Christ grants not merely temporary life, as ordinary food and drink, but permanent, everlasting life. And so all food, in this sense, can be seen as a type, an object lesson teaching us about Christ. And so as you eat, thank the Lord for his provision, both for your daily bread, right, granting you life that day, but also for the true bread, which you have received by faith. And so believing in Jesus, receiving him, coming to him in faith is what this passage is all about. If you have believed in the gospel, if you have trusted in the promise that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross, then you have metaphorically eaten and drunk in the way that Christ speaks of here. And there's one more point I have which may shed some light on this imagery. Um, in the Old Covenant, 
uh, as people would bring sacrifices, uh, many of these sacrifices would also be eaten either by the person who brought them or by the priest. And so you'd see some of these sacrifices, you know, as the lamb or goat as part of it is burnt and offered up to God, uh, then the rest of it would be roasted and would be eaten by the one bringing the sacrifice. And so we see there's a sense then in which eating of the sacrifice made you a participant in the sacrifice. And Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 10, 18, where he says, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices participants in the altar? Right? So they are, in a meaningful sense, partakers in that sacrifice. And although Jesus doesn't say it here, I don't think it's a stretch to see a similar idea at play. Jesus had said he is giving his flesh as life for the world. And as we know, it was his body that was broken, his blood that was poured out unto death. He was offered as our sacrifice for sin, not on an altar, but on a cross. It is then through faith in him that we are made participants in his sacrifice, right? By faith, we are made partakers in his body and blood. This is what Jesus was saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. It is believe in me, come to me, right? And so those who do are counted as participants in the sacrifice, just as the people bringing sacrifices and eating of them in the old covenant were participants in those sacrifices, And so this then is what we put on display in the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation of the body of Christ? By partaking of the bread and wine, we are putting on display the underlying reality. We are demonstrating that we are true partakers of Christ's sacrifice. That we have come to him and believed in him and so have eternal life through him. For just as Christ did not remain in the grave, so too all who are united to him will be raised as he was raised. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So in conclusion, this passage in John does not speak directly to the Lord's Supper, but it does expose the true nature of the Supper as clearly as any other passage in Scripture. So communion is a sacrament, an outward sign of an inward grace. It is a sign and seal to be given to all who are truly united to Christ, to all true New Covenant members living in fellowship with him and his church. That means it is for those who are seeking to live obediently to all of his commands in every area of life. So if you are a baptized Christian, a member of this church or of another faithful body, seeking to live out the Christian life in every way, we invite you to partake with us of the Lord's Supper.